Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. You have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 15 as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. This particular book and this particular chapter of the book is very significant because we are transitioning. If you remember when we ended out in chapter 11, I told you at chapter 11 it stopped right there as far as the chronology or the sequential order of what was happening. And then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he introduced us to some of the participants of the apocalypse. Last week we saw about all of the angels and what they'll be carrying out in the end of the apocalypse. Now, beginning in chapter 15, you pick back up with the chronology or the, or the sequence of what's happening. So you go from chapter uh, 11, the very last verse of chapter 11, I'll show you in a moment, and you'll begin to pick up with the chronology back in chapter 15, verse 5. So if you were in your mind trying to think about how this follows and how this flows, you just take 11 to the end of the chapter, skip over to chapter 15, verse 6, and that picks up the chronology of what is happening. Remember what's taken place so far in this regard to what has happened as far as the revealing of the end times and what's going to take place. We had the, the breaking of the seven seals. You remember that? There was the breaking of the seven seals. And then as we got to the seventh seal, then it introduced the seven trumpets. And then as it goes to the seven trumpets, at the seven trumpets are the seven bowls of wrath, which are still yet to come in this book. So we have gotten to the point where we're all through the seven seals, we're to the trumpets, and we're at that point of the seven trumpets, and now we're at a point of the seven seals being broken. And remember at the fifth trumpet, it says that there was going to be the, the last three woes. Remember the eagle came and said, woe, woe, woe. And the first of those woes was the was the fifth trumpet. The second of those woes was the sixth trumpet. And it says the last of those woes is going to be the seventh trumpet as it blows. And it says about it, and it will come quickly. It doesn't mean that it's coming quickly, but what it means is whenever that trumpet blows and the things are going to take place in that trumpet blowing, which are the seven bowls of wrath, they're going to take place rapidly. They're going to take place in in very quick order. It's not going to be like uh, months and years between each of those events. They're just going to happen very rapidly as God is bringing to a close what is called his wrath so that he can reestablish his kingdom. Remember, the ultimate thing is that God is having to deal with the sin of this world. He's having to deal with the sin. He's having to clean up the sin. He's having to bring forth his wrath, which is the righteous judgment of the king. And the judge has to bring that on the world in order that he can recreate the world and remake the world as he first made it so that it can be occupied by those who are the righteous ones. And so this process of God dealing with the wrath, his wrath on this world is only to make preparation so that he can bring forth a new creation. I want you to get in your mind and your heart as we talk about that. I think sometimes we get the wrong view. I think sometimes people have the view that God is looking forward to bringing forth wrath, that God looks forward to judging his world and all these things. That is not the mind and heart of God. The mind and heart of God is that God wants to bless. God wants to do good. Well, God wants to recreate. God wants to uh, 
bring about all those things that would make his children happy. It's not a point of wrath. Let me ask you a question. If you are a, what you would consider a good parent, do you enjoy bringing forth wrath to your children? I mean, is that, is that a joy to you? No. We don't like to have to discipline our children or punish our children. What do we want to do? We want to bless them, don't we? We want to bless them. Now, where did that come in your heart? Where, where did you get that? That comes and originates from the heart of God. If you were a person who just enjoyed wrath, then you are way away from the heart of God. But the heart of God is that God chooses and wants to bless rather than bring forth judgment and discipline and wrath. But because of sin, God has to bring forth the wrath of God in order to cleanse the world so that he can recreate the world as he wants it to be. I want you to get that in your heart and your mind as we draw close to the end of this wrath of God. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the wrath of God in this book to be over. Amen. I'm ready to get over them chapters where it talks about the new heaven and new earth and all that kind of stuff. The attendance will pick up when we get over there. Do y'all know that? I want to to put out a message. We'll get over here to the good part now so y'all can come. Y'all can come back. Okay. But we got to deal with the wrath of God and what it says. And, and And here's an encouraging word. It's coming to an end. Look what it says in chapter 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Now, this is the third time he said that. You remember where he said it before? He said it in chapter 12, verse 1. He said he saw a sign in heaven. He saw a woman. And we told you that that woman was Israel, a great and marvelous sign. Then he also says it in chapter 12, verse 3, when he says, And he saw a great and marvelous sign. He saw the dragon who was Satan. So this is the third time that he sees in heaven a great and marvelous sign. And it says he sees, he says, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, you ought to underline this, which are the last, that's what we've been looking for, which are the last, that's the Greek word eschatos, or where we get the word eschatology, the study of end times, the study of last things. It says that these are the last things because in them the wrath of God is finished. You ought to circle that word finished about three times, amen? It's telling us that we're getting to that place where the wrath of God is finished. His cleansing of the world is going to take place. This is the last of this that's going to happen. What a good and glorious word. What an encouraging word to us that we're coming close to the end. Now, if you're going to outline this chapter, I want to give you three phrases, all right? Three little statements, and I want you to put them in in sequential order, and we'll fill those in for you. The first thing I want you to put, number one, I saw. Okay, that's the words. I saw. Secondly, they sang. They sang. And third, the seven angels came. That's the outline. You think you can follow that? I saw, they sang, and the seven angels came. What is this talking about? Look what it says in verse 2. Here's God's word. And I saw, there it is. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name 
standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. What did he see? He sees, uh, it says, a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, do you remember us hearing about a, a, a sea of glass before? That's found in chapter 4, verse 6, when it introduced us to heaven and its throne. Remember, there was the throne of God. And before the throne of God, it says that before that was a sea of glass, the reflective glory of God being shown in that sea of glass. So it introduces us to a place that is right before the throne of God. It also introduced us at that place about the four living creatures that we call the cherubim. It also went on and introduced to us at that particular place in chapter 4, those 24 elders who are all the redeemed of the Old Testament era and of the New Testament era are, to put it simply, you and me. That's when we're in glory. The church has been raptured. We're up there in heaven. And we're there at the throne of God sitting around and out in front is this sea of glass. Well, when he sees this sea this time, look what he says in verse 2. He says, I see a sea of glass, but it is mixed with fire. It is mixed with fire. What does he mean? it's, It's the picture of this sea of glass, but as though one comes through the fire. As those who are here and who have walked through the fire are the tribulation. What this is simply talking about is talking about all those people who have come to know Christ in this time of tribulation. As we've told you many times in this journey, there will be people who are saved. There will be people who give their heart to Christ, but they will go through horrible persecution. Many of them, as we've read about, will be martyred because of their faith. They're going to be in battle against the enemy. They're going to have to reject the beast. We're going to have to reject the mark and the number of the beast. They're going to have to stand on their own. They're not going to be able to carry on commerce. They're going to be martyred as best they, as the old beast could and to try to wipe them out. These are those who are saved. These are those who are going to come to know Christ in that time of tribulation. And it tells us that there will be multitudes of them, so many people that you cannot count them. So he says, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those had come off, those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, they were, listen to what it says, underline this, They were standing on the sea. They were standing on the sea. And why are they there? Because they are victorious. They're victorious over the beast. They're victorious over his mark. They're victorious over Satan. They're victorious over the number. They're victorious through the tribulation time. They are victorious. They have come off or come out victorious. Praise God. Praise God that they can have victory in the midst of horrible, terrible tribulation when the church is removed, when the restraining one is taken away, when Satan is rampant, when the beast is there, when the false prophet is there, when all the world has been set under their power, there are those who will come off victorious. Amen. Thanks be to God that God has those who will 
be saved. And notice what it says. And they're standing on the sea. They're standing on the sea. That's important. That's important. Because they're standing on the sea. They've got something to proclaim. What are they going to proclaim? It comes down to the next one. Look what it says in verse 3. We're not going to get there yet, but look what it says. And they sang the songs of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They're standing on the sea because their very position on the sea is a great position for the songs they're going to sing. And what are the songs they're going to sing? They're going to sing two songs. They're going to sing the song of Moses... And they're going to sing the song of the Lamb. And who's the Lamb? That's Jesus, okay? So they're going to be standing on the sea, that fiery sea, that tribulation, because they've come out victorious. They're standing on the sea, and they're going to sing those two songs. Now, isn't it interesting that whenever they sing those two songs, they sing about people who had something to do with the sea? Didn't both of those have something to do with the sea? Oh, yes, they did. You remember Moses, uh, don't you? And Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And whenever they're about to go over there, all of a sudden they're, they're looking and what's before them? The red what? There it is. There it is. The red what? Sea. The red sea. And the children of Israel are all frightened and afraid. Because Pharaoh changes his mind, he's going to come and take them and take and recapture them and carry them back into slavery in Egypt. But God says, do not worry, for he raises up the arms of Moses with his staff and his rod. And what happens? The sea parts and they walk through. They walk through the sea. They walk through the sea, what? On dry land. They get to the other side of the sea on dry land. And then Pharaoh's army is allowed to come in. The fire is removed. Pharaoh's army comes in and the sea covers them and buries their army. And on the other side of the sea, on the other side of the sea, in the wilderness side, not on Egypt's side, they sing in Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses. The song of Moses. And you know what the song of Moses is about? It's about the power of God to save and to deliver. He saved them from Egypt. He delivered them from Pharaoh's hand. And it's a song pronouncing the power of God to save and to deliver. They sing the song of Moses, it says. Well, that's not all. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They sing the song of the Lamb. They sing the song of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. He has something to do with the sea. His sea was not the Red Sea. His was the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) The Sea of Galilee. Whenever he sent his his disciples out on a boat and sent them away from him while he is praying, and in the midst of the storm, he comes walking out to them on the sea. Right? Isn't that the story? He comes walking them on the sea, and they realize that he is somebody who is strictly unique. For nobody walks on the sea. Do they? No. But as he comes walking on that sea, he pronounces himself as the Son of God. 
And he's eventually going to reveal himself not only as the Son of God, but as the Savior and the Deliverer of their life. And when he dies on that cross, he's going to pay the price of their sin. And he, the one who walked upon the water, is the one who saves and delivers them. See, both Moses and Jesus, in their relationship to the sea and their relationship to this world, they were saviors, they were deliverers. And therefore, when it says that they're standing on the sea, on the sea of glass, they're pronouncing the fact that they're related both to Moses and they're related to Jesus. They're related to them for they are standing on that which no one could stand on except those who follow Moses are those who follow Jesus. <laughs> I noticed this before they get to singing, the second part of that singing, I want you to see in verse 2 again what it says. It says, they were standing on the sea of glass. What were they doing? Look what it says. What it says in your Bible. They were what? Holding what? What does your Bible say? Look at your Bible. Holding harps. Hope you have, don't put your Bible up. Open your Bible up so you can see what we're saying. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Bible's saying. You make sure you check me out. All right? Look at it. See. It says they were holding harps of what? Of who? Harps of God. Harps of God. There were, been, there were two other groups who were holding harps. You remember that? One of those were the 24 elders. Who are they? Us. Us. The 24 elders all were holding the harps of God. That means we're all going to get harps when we go to glory. I don't have to be jealous of Kevin anymore. Aren't you jealous of somebody who can play anything that doesn't move? Just pick it up and play it. I'm sitting there. How does he know that sounds like that? How do you know that? When I get to glory, brother, I'm going to be the number one chair harp player. (laughs) 24 elders were holding harps. You know who else were holding harps? The 144,000. Go back and read it. Last chapter. We just end chapter 14. It says the 144,000 were given harps. And not only were they given harps, but these who came through the tribulation time, they are given the harps of God. Can you imagine what that's going to sound like? Can you imagine what all of those millions, millions and millions of harps playing the songs of God? That will be amazing. That will be utterly, absolutely amazing. Matter of fact, I thought about this week. I wonder if God has a harp factory up there. Man, that's a lot of harps to make, isn't it? That's a lot of harps to have to play. But they're all there. And what is a picture of? That the same way that the 24 elders, all of the redeemed of the Old Testament and New Testament era, they got to play the harp. So did the 144,000 who had the seal of God who walk through that tribulation time without being touched, they have the seal of God. They play the harps. And so will those who come through the tribulation time. They will play the harps. I saw, I saw those standing on the sea, standing on the sea, playing harps, those who had come through the tribulation. I saw. They sang. That's the second part there in verse 3. And they sang, I told you already, 
the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, this is what those two songs say together, great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, almighty, righteous, and true are thy ways. Thou King of the nation, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. Now the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb Joined together, it says, this is what it says about God. This is what they say about God. This is what it pronounces about Almighty God. One of the interesting trivia points of this is, did you know the first hymn, the first song that was ever sung and recorded in the Bible was Exodus 15. Exodus 15, that's the song of Moses. Did you know the last song that's ever recorded in the Bible? is Revelation 15, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It focuses on four things very quickly. It focuses on the character of God and the works of God. He says, first of all, great and marvelous are thy works. What's the greatest work God has ever done? What's the greatest work God has ever done? Made the world? What's the greatest work God has ever done? Redeemed, lost, dying, forsaken people. That's the greatest work God has ever done. Can you imagine that? We're filthy and dirty and God can make us clean and he can keep us clean in a dirty world. All right? That's the greatest work of God. And the great work they're talking about is the redemption of their souls. Talks about the character of God. Oh, Lord God, you are almighty, you are righteous, and true are thy ways. See, when we realize that God is righteous in all of his ways and true in all of his ways, then we realize that whenever the wrath of God comes, it has to come because he's righteous and he's true. Not that he wants to have to do that, but he, by his very character, demands that he has to do it, for he is righteous and true. But look what else it says. Thou king of the nations, who will not fear, reverence you, O Lord, and glorify thy name. It's like a question. Who who would ever not choose to fear you and to glorify your name as awesome as you are, as wonderful as you are? Who would ever miss out on worshiping and glorifying your name? For thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, and thy righteous acts have been revealed. That is a song, a pronouncement of the glory, majesty, and wonder of God. And who is leading forth that song? Those who have come through the tribulation time, who have accepted Jesus Christ, who have been victorious over all they had to go through, and they stand to proclaim, playing their harps, that glorious song of God. I saw, they sang, the last part is, 
and the seven angels came. This is where, beginning there in verse 5, in verse 5, the chronology picks back up. Let me show you what I mean. Go back in your Bibles to 11, chapter 11, verse 19. This is how that chapter ends. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes and lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Notice what happens in 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. Now go to chapter 15, verse 5. Put everything else out of the way. Go right to 5. After these things, I looked up. And the, taber, the, temple, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was what? Was open. You see how they're tied together? Over here at the end of chapter 11, it was open. Come here to verse 5, it is open. So this is the beginning. This is the beginning of that sequential order picking up of what is going to take place. This is the beginning of that third woe. This is the fulfillment of that seventh trumpet. This is going to be where the seven bowls of wrath are brought forth, as he said, very, very quickly. Listen to what it says in verses 5 through 8. And after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright. And girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, chapter 15 and chapter 16 go together. The very end of chapter 15, what I just read, and all of chapter 16 are the same thing through two different views. Do you realize there's always in the events that take place in life, there's two different perspectives, always. There may be more than that, but there's always two perspectives. What do I mean by that? There's a heavenly perspective. There's a heavenly perspective that views what is taking place in this world. And then there's an earthly or worldly perspective that sees what's taking place in this world. The heavenly perspective is from God's view of what he's accomplishing and what this is really doing in regard to eternal things. The earthly perspective is trying to grasp and understand why and what's taking place and how this has to do with all that God is doing. In other words, when we have an earthly perspective, we don't understand, do we? Many things we do not understand, but we are called to what? To trust God. So here are the two perspectives. In chapter 15, verses 5 to the end of that chapter, is the heavenly perspective of what's going to take place. Then you're going to begin in chapter 16. We'll be there next Sunday. In chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, you're going to hear the very same thing. The very seven bowls of wrath are going to happen. But it's going to be from an earthly perspective of what the earth sees and how it takes and gives meaning to what's happening at that particular point. 
Today is the heavenly perspective. Why these seven plagues? Why these seven bowls of wrath? And really when it says bowls, it's more like a censer. It would be the censer, a little flat pan where they'd put the fire in the pan. Then they would drop the incense upon it and the incense would rise up. That's really the picture of it, all right? And, and you got that in chapter 15 and that in chapter 16. This is the heavenly perspective. Listen to what it says is, is that perspective. He says, I looked in and I, I, I looked up there and I saw the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven and it was open. In other words, I, God's given him the opportunity of seeing into heaven what's taking place. And these bowls of wrath, these censers of wrath are originating out of the temple of God. They're coming forth from the temple of God. And they're coming forth with seven angels. Look at there in verse 6. And the seven angels who had seven plagues came out of the temple. Notice now how they are clothed. This is very important. They are clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breast with golden girdles. Do you know how they are dressed? You know what that's the dress and the garb of? That's the garb of the priest. If you want to find that, go back to Exodus chapter 28. Begin reading there when it talks about the priestly garment. It'll describe that the priestly garment were to be made of linen. Then it'll talk about all the gold things that will be upon that. These angels are dressed like priests. They are coming forth from the temple of God to carry on a priestly responsibility in regards to preparing the world for God to establish his kingdom. They come forth as priests to carry out what's going to be required in order for the cleansing to happen so that a new creation and a new world can be established. From God's perspective, they are dressed in white linen. They're carrying out these bowls of wrath. They're doing what must be done from a heavenly perspective to pay the price of sin so that the kingdom can be established. In other words, it's not a horrible thing. It's not a terrible thing. It's a necessary thing. That's what the priest had to do back in the Levitical time, wasn't it? And the priest would go out and they would do all kinds of horrendous things. How many of you would like to have cut a lamb's throat? How many of you would like to drain the blood out of a calf? How many of you like to take them and place them on the altar of sacrifice? How many of you like to deal with that gory detail? Those priests dressed in fine linen carried out those kinds of acts, not because they enjoyed it, not because they wanted to, because it was necessary. It was absolutely necessary. And these angels go forth from the temple of God, and they're carrying on a priestly, holy, necessary responsibility. And that responsibility is they are each one carrying their censer that has a plague. And that plague, those seven plagues, are what will finish out the wrath of God. That's what God's been looking for. Amen? That's what the last thing we're looking for. When is that last thing paid for? When it is completely finished? When is it over that now God can pour out the blessings in this world? It is the last times this is about to finish, and it's their priestly duty, their priestly responsibility to carry it out. Well, look what happens. What are these seven bowls they're carrying going to do? Look at verse 7. 
And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. You remember those four living creatures, don't you? They're found in in Revelation chapter 4. Those four living creatures are four cherubim. And you remember what we told you about the cherubim back there in chapter 4? What was the cherubim's responsibility? Those four creatures, what was their responsibility? Their responsibility were to be the instruments of God to bring about the judgment that would be necessary on this world. Do you remember whenever they whenever it happened, they called forth, whenever they called forth each one of the horsemen? The first cherubim called forth the first horseman. The second cherubim called the second horseman. You remember, you remember that happened? Third, fourth. All of them were calling forth those horsemen of the apocalypse in order to bring about the judgment of God. That's their role and responsibility. Now, here, one of those cherubim, I don't know which one it was, but one of those four cherubim, one of those four living creatures, he has the responsibility of giving out seven bowls, seven golden bowls to these seven angels who will carry out the priestly duty. And it says in verse 7, it is full of the wrath of God. It is full of the wrath of God. These seven angels are about to go and they're about to release seven horrible plagues upon the earth. It's going to happen in rapid succession. It is going to be the final acts of the wrath of God. The final acts of the wrath of God. Now, let me tell you how fast it happens. They all come forth in chapter 16. In chapter 16, all seven of those plagues will be identified in rapid succession. You can read them when you go home. Every one of them take place one right after the other. What? It's the wrath of God that it might be finished. Now, look in verse 8. It gives you the heavenly perspective. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels, underline this, were finished. Anytime that there was the filling of the temple with the smoke or the Shekinah glory of God, it was to reveal the glory of God, but it also revealed the power of God. There were times recorded in in, uh, the Old Testament history when no one could approach the mountain of God or no one could approach the tabernacle of God because the presence and power of God was there. This is displaying the glory of God and the power of God when he sends forth those seven angels with those seven plagues to finish and complete the wrath of God, to finish the redemptive work of God so that he might make the world new. He might make the world new. Now we're all eager to get over there about the new heaven and new earth. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Let's get over there that new heaven and new earth. Amen, brother. Let's get over there. You can't get there. Unless the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the justice of God cause sin, sin, and makes it be paid for. That's the only way you can get there. There's no other way to get there. We want to skip that part. You can't skip that part. For see, the story of the revelation is God's redemption of his entire creation. And in order for God to redeem the entire creation and to make all things new, he has to allow the wrath of God to come upon this world of sin. He has to allow the punishment for sin to take place. 
the penalty of sin to be cast. He has to do that. But wait a minute. That's what he had to do with you. That's what he had to do with you. How do you think that you how do you think that you have the kingdom of God living in your heart? How do you have the kingdom of God living? How do you have the Lord Jesus Christ living in your heart? I can tell you how you have it. It's because he had to pronounce the wrath of God upon you. The wrath of God had to fall upon you. Because you were a wretched sinner. I was a wretched sinner. And there was no way for God to look over my sin. He's a holy God. He couldn't do that. Rather, he had to judge that sin. And the wrath of God had to come on my life because of that sin. But here's the difference. Jesus took my place. Jesus took your place. The wrath of God fell upon him. My friend, when he hung on that cross, he hung for your sin. That's not some mystical thing. That's the truth of Almighty God. He hung for your sin. He paid the price for your sin. And the wrath of God fell on him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, become sin on our behalf, that the righteousness of God might dwell upon us. So you can't get the righteousness of God. You can't have Jesus living in your heart unless first the wrath of God and the penalty of sin was paid, and Jesus did that. And that's exactly what has to happen. Don't back up as some people do. Oh, I don't think that's right for God to do. Don't you dare say that. Don't you dare say that. It was paid for you. That's the only way you got saved. Somebody paid for you. So what God does for the world is no different than what he did for you. Here's the big difference. For those who do not know Christ, the wrath of God will fall on them. Not that God wants it to, but because they reject the Savior. And the wrath of God will fall upon this world because it rejects the Savior. But it has to happen in order for all things to be made new. And it will be made new. And it's going to be glorious and wonderful. We get to experience that. Hallelujah. Praise God. And I want you to know this. Jesus taught you and me how to pray. Didn't he? He taught us the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And, and what did he pray? What did he teach us to pray? You pray it all the time. You ever taught your kids how to pray the model prayer? Thy kingdom come. My friend, when you pray, when you pray that, that sentence, thy kingdom come, you are praying for the wrath of God to fall upon sin, that the kingdom of God would be established in this world. When you pray thy kingdom come, you're praying for that to happen, or it must happen. Praise be to God for Jesus who took my payment of sin and the wrath of God, that I might experience the mercy of God. Has he done that for you? He died on the cross for you. There's no doubt he did it for you. But here's the question. Have you let him do it for you? Have you accepted him as Lord and Savior? Have you let the wrath of God fall upon him so that you don't have to face the wrath of God? I pray that you have. I pray that you will today. If you've never given your heart to Christ, today would be the day. 
you would give your heart and your life to Jesus. And when we come to fully realize what he's done for us, then we'll understand what he's going to have to do for this world for it to be made new. Not because he wants to. Not because he looks forward to it. But because he has to in order to make it new. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.